I've always loved to laugh, and I often joke around with my friends. And recently I've been interested in the strategies one can use to become more funny. And this really inspired me to read a book titled Stand Up Comedy the Book by Judy Carter. And in this book, she covers how to obtain comedic material, how to make it funny, and how to personalize it. And this book was great, but I still had questions. For this reason, I reached out to Brent Forrester. Brent is an American comedy writer and producer. Brent has written for shows such as The Simpsons, The Ben Stiller Show, King of the Hill, and the American version of The Office. At the moment, he's executive producer and head writer for the Netflix original Space Force. During his free time, Brent enjoys performing stand-up comedy in local LA venues. Today, I plan to talk with Brent about comedy in general, whether it be on stage, in the writer's room, or in everyday conversation. Today, we will talk about strategies for gathering comedic material, techniques to get laughs, the difference between silly and funny, and how one might pursue comedy in the future. And now I give you Brent Forrester. Brent, welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Brent, is there anything else you might add about your background or experience? Well, I would just say that it's interesting, given the credits I have, that I never was considered a funny person growing up. I was really kind of a serious person. I got into comedy writing through writing short stories, which was a hobby of mine. And when I graduated college, I discovered that I really had acquired no skills at all. I had learned kind of nothing that you could use to make a living, but I had taken a lot of short story classes and I thought, well, are there other kinds of writing that I could do to make a living? And I uh, took courses in journalism. I took a course in soap opera writing. I would have been a soap opera writer if somebody had given me a job, uh, but I didn't have any connections anywhere except I had one friend whose mom was a comedy writer. And so I asked her how you get into comedy writing and that's really where it started. So I did not learn anything about being funny, writing funny comedy in general until after college. And I hope that's encouraging to any of your listeners who are looking to pursue comedy. Uh, you don't have to be born talented or have shown any even interest or aptitude in comedy until you're in your 20s and you can still have a career in it. That worked for me. Yeah, so if comedy never came naturally for you, then how did you go about collecting your comedic material? It's a great question. I have uh, parents, both my parents are doctors like yours, and you know, doctors are naturally very scientific, and they like to analyze things and, and pick them apart, and I kind of picked up that trait from them. So when I decided I would try to learn how to write comedy, I started watching TV comedy a lot, and I would typically watch maybe four episodes of TV a day, half hour comedies, the most uh, popular comedies of the day. And then every time a joke made me laugh, I would write down that joke exactly as it was said. And then I would look at it and say, well, what's going on there? Why did I laugh at that line? What's happening there? And I found that there was a lot that you could, you could figure out pretty quickly. Um, one thing you'll notice in television comedy is there's often this setup punchline form so that one character kind of does a setup and the other character does a punchline. And as soon as you identify that, you're sort of well on your way to, to understanding the structure of comedy. Um, I found that when, um, when there was an element of surprise, you often got a bigger laugh and uh, frequently you could use, um, you could disguise a setup. Uh, so, uh, for example, if somebody goes, if somebody comes into a restaurant and goes, God, what do I got to do to get a, a menu around here? 
That doesn't actually feel like a question. It's a rhetorical question. If somebody comes in with a punchline like, take a bath, you know, it can, it could have an element of surprise that increases the, the uh, comedy. So, you know, fi finding little tricks like that. I also found that if you used a punchline as a setup, nobody expects a punchline to be a setup. A punchline mm -hmm. feels like it kind of ended the joke. So if you use that as a setup for the next joke, it has an element of surprise. Anyway, it's just a way of showing you that if you're, if you're scientific about it and you just ask why something made you laugh, you can often find little patterns, structures, um, and tricks that you can use um, in your own comedy writing. Yeah, that's very interesting. In the book, Judy Carter Moore talked about how the setup is to create a sort of false sense of similarity or understanding with the audience. And then the punch shatters that um, understanding that was just previously created. But I can see just putting the surprising element first definitely being very effective, especially because, you know, it's less predictable. Sure. I'll tell you something. The people that I've worked with, you know, I've worked with a thousand comedy writers now and uh, almost none of them approaches comedy analytically. I was the only one that I knew of that really approached it com uh, comedy analytically. I did it because, like I say, I didn't have any talent in comedy, so I had to sort of try to learn. But most people do it very intuitively. And, and in fact, if I were to give advice to somebody trying to do comedy, what I would say is, when you're writing comedy, it's mostly trial and error. So if you say, okay, what do we got to do here? I got to write a joke about, um, you know, Donald Trump, say. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you just get out your notepad and you start thinking about Donald Trump and, and you think about, um, you know, the way he talks, what he looks like, what he's recently done, uh, what annoys you about him, what you want to say about him. And you, you just kind of try and come up with stuff. And if you, if you try 10 times to come up with something funny, Typically, once or twice, you'll kind of get in an area of something funny. And so, in fact, without any kind of scientific analysis at all, just through trial and error, you frequently can, can uh, arrive at funny areas that you can kind of tweak and, and, and get punchlines out of. You know, the thing I really have noticed as a person who runs writer's rooms, which is what I do now, t TV, as you probably know, uh, is written in groups of people. And so I generally end up as the kind of... Uh, the, the coach of the room, the, the head writer of the room. So what I try to do is understanding that trial and error is a big part of what we do. I try to get everybody very loose so that they feel very relaxed trying stuff. And that's not necessarily the norm. When I was on The Simpsons, we had a room that was very intimidating. Everyone in the room was so smart. The standard for comedy was so high on The Simpsons that nobody wanted to say anything because they were afraid of saying something dumb. And those rooms are not good for comedy. If you're intimidated, you don't try. And if you don't try, you're not going to do very well in your trial and error process. Much better to convince yourself that everything you're doing is okay and then just go for volume. And, and uh, something you can notice if you try writing comedy, Jaden, is if you decide you're going to try to write a joke and get out your notepad and just mm -hmm. spend an hour just jamming stuff out and then leave it. If you come back the next day, you'll almost always find there's some stuff in there that's funnier than you thought. It's this wonderful miracle of comedy. You try, you set it aside, you look at it the next day, you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's some good stuff here. So that's my biggest piece of advice is uh, get relaxed and do lots of trial and you'll find you, you come up with stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it seems like it's just uh, doing a vomit passage where you just uh, write down everything mm -hmm. or any, any ideas for comedy mm -hmm. and then you later go through that and that seems to be an effective strategy. Um, for sure. That term vomit pass, by the way, is one that I learned from Judd Apatow, who directed um, 
the 40-year-old virgin, uh, Pineapple Express. Uh, he produced um, Super Bad, uh, Bridesmaids, gigantic comedy producer. Yeah. He's really coined this term vomit pass because what he wanted writers to do was not be too worried when writing a draft of a script, but to just imagine, okay, it's vomit. Vomit isn't good. Vomit comes out fast. So make it come out fast and be kind of terrible and, and uh, just get from the beginning to the end of a script. If you do that, then everything becomes much easier once you have a draft. So the vomit mm -hmm. pass is a great term to have in your, uh, in your vocab. For sure. And um, so it seems like you, you do a lot of, you know, contemplating about different, things that might be funny and then writing those down, whatever they might be. Um, but do you ever just go off of like your own life experiences? If you find something strange or um, you have a unpopular opinion about something, sure. do you ever, do you ever include those in your comedy writing? And can you include those in the shows that you write for? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the first great lesson I got in comedy writing came from a super successful uh, television writer, a woman named Susan Harris. She gave me my first job in TV. She was the uh, a mom of a friend of mine. And she, she was a totally self-taught comedy writer. Nobody taught her anything. She just happened to be kind of a genius at writing comedy. And uh, I wrote a, a spec script, which is to say a writing sample. Uh, and she read it and, and it was my first comedy writing sample. It was not good. And when she tried to explain to me what I needed to learn, she said, um, she said three things. She said, first of all, silly isn't funny, which was interesting because almost everything I was doing was just silliness. She felt that that wasn't the way to go, that you wanted to go after more serious material. Uh, she said, write the way people talk, which was new to me. I was writing very contrived, uh, jokey sounding dialogue and it wasn't funny. It just sounded weird and awkward. So she said, write the way people talk very naturalistically is the way you want to write dialogue. But the most important thing she said was, she said, write about what is difficult for you, even painful, and trust that it will come out funny. So this is a way of trying to answer your question about where your material comes from. There's a strange paradox in comedy, which is the more serious the material, often the funnier it becomes. And that very frequently what we're responding to in comedy is somebody really trying to express something uh, painful to them, um, irritating, annoying, something that makes them angry, something that's embarrassing to them, something that's difficult to share. That's where really, really good comedy comes from. Now, in, in stand-up comedy, um, I had this gigantic um, insight. I started doing stand-up comedy because I had been a television writer for many years and I noticed that the TV writers that I worked with that had done stand-up comedy, they often had this real confidence in the writer's room that most of the rest of us lacked. Anybody who had done stand-up comedy, they seemed to have this kind of louder voice, this, this bravado. You would just go, they're funny in this way that, that I need to learn what they know from being on stage. So I started going on stage you know, first just going to open mic nights, volunteering for free. And then I would use my agents, my writing agents to try to use connections to get me on stage places. And I would go and do, you know, stand-up comedy clubs. But the big revelation that I had was this. I started out doing material that had nothing to do with me. It was totally impersonal. The first time I got on stage in a comedy club, I actually brought um, the Bible uh, it was a, a Bible that I got in Hawaii. That it's, it's the Bible translated into Hawaiian pidgin English. 
and it's this hilarious book where you know it, it, Jesus is talking like a Hawaiian. It's it's the most amazing thing ever. Like like the the Sermon on the Mount, which says, um, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth." In the Hawaiian pigeon version, it's um, the people who who the people who help other people come friends again, they can stay good inside, right? It's just this crazy thing. So I would just get up there and read Hawaiian Bible, and it got laughs because it's kind of crazy and funny, uh, but it, was, it said nothing about me. I wasn't revealing anything about myself. I wasn't trying to express anything. I wasn't really making a point. Very, very safe comedy, and ultimately not the kind of comedy that is really going to help you make a name for yourself. The big uh, change for me, a big revelation came to me when I was invited to do stand-up comedy in a in a show at a theater called the Upright Citizens Brigade. And they said, look, our show, we're gonna have you come on stage, the audience is gonna call out some word, and you'll just tell a story related to that word. It doesn't matter what the story is, it doesn't have to be funny, then a bunch of us comic actors are gonna come and act out your story in a funny way. So you don't even have to be funny. It's good if you're funny, but it doesn't matter. And I was very nervous, because I was like, I can't prepare, what am I gonna do? And they, they said, don't worry, just something will occur. So I stand on the stage, you know, somebody says uh, the word uh, vacation. And so I say, oh, vacation, uh, okay, uh, I'll, here's a story. Uh, you know, I used to own a motorcycle. I used to go on these trips with my friend. We used to, uh, we used to put, uh, we had saddlebags. We would put pizza in the saddlebags of the motorcycle. That's what we like to eat. And we would have this, these hot pizzas in the side of the motorcycle, right? I told this whole story about riding a motorcycle with, you know, full of pizza in the saddlebags. It was a funny story. Uh, and four or five times in the course of that show, People called out words. I had to come up with a story and, and tell a story. And it was much funnier than what I had been doing with the Hawaiian Bible and the other you know, material that I've been doing. And I had this sudden insight that it was much funnier for me to tell a personal story about myself in which I was the protagonist of the story up in front of the people, especially if the story had something a little bit embarrassing in it, that got great laughs. And so from that moment on, I totally changed what I did on stage. I only told first person stories about myself, generally doing crazy stuff, uh, getting myself embarrassed, uh, you know, doing, you know, embarrassing things. And that always got the laugh. So uh, it goes to show that if you have the courage, as most comedians do, to reveal stuff about yourself that most people would be a little bit embarrassed to do, that is the guaranteed formula for comedy on the stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like they're just glad it's not them up there. Yeah. <laughs> embarrassing themselves. Right? The funniest thing is when you're laughing at somebody, um, but of <laughs> course it's this magic trick of courage, right? Because most of us don't want to reveal stuff that's embarrassing about ourselves. Comedians are constantly revealing stuff that would be embarrassing to you and me if we said it, but they do it with this complete shamelessness. And, and I sometimes think that the comedian is a kind of magician of shamelessness. You know, if you look at a guy like um, Louis C.K. before he uh, became uh, persona non grata, the reason he was such a big uh, famous comedian was he would, he would reveal stuff about himself that was just completely humiliating but he had no shame about it. And that was the magic trick of Louis C.K. Talking about his weird eating you know, issues and his weird sex stuff that would just be humiliating to most of us if we were to reveal it. And he'd just get up there and say, this is who I am. And we laughed with delight. You know, it kind of, I think, relieves us of our self-consciousness when we go, well, shoot, if that guy can go up there and say that about himself and not be embarrassed, I shouldn't feel embarrassed in my life. I think it's a little bit of a magic trick psychologically that happens when comedians do that on stage.
do do comedians like that have to walk the line of like okay what's just gonna gross people out or what's going to weird them out uh versus what's gonna make them laugh whether in pity or just relief yeah for sure well that's what you know we get back to trial and error comedians have historically worked out a lot of their material on stage so something that a, a working comedian will do all the time is they'll say all right I, i'm gonna go up on stage i've got 15 minutes to entertain this crowd I know I have a really strong, you know, opening five minutes that always works. And I got this really funny story that I tell that I can use at the end for three minutes. So I know I can start strong and end strong. And then in the middle here, I've got my notebook. I've written some stuff that I think is going to be funny. Let me try it out. If it doesn't work, it's okay because I'll get back to funny at the end. So if you go to a comedy club, you'll very often see comedians working out new material in the middle of their set. And you can always notice, you'll be like, God, they started out funny. They're kind of losing it here a little bit. And then boom, they end up strong again because they're working out on stage their middle. Now, something that's happened recently in the last, uh, you know, five, 10 years, but especially in the last few years is um, comedians are getting really scared to work out their material on stage because A, everybody has cameras and they film mm -hmm. you doing your material that you're trying to work out. And, you know, comedians, they really do try to explore the edge of what is appropriate to say. Sometimes they go over the edge and the audience is, you know, silent or annoyed or even booze. And they're like, okay, note to self, don't do that material again. But if somebody records that and puts it online, it can be very troubling in the you know, world of cancel culture, et cetera. So a hundred percent of comedians are complaining about this, that they, uh, that they don't have the ability and freedom to work out their stuff the way they used to. But, you know, that's the, the times we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then a good segue from making fun of yourself. Mm -hmm. What, what are your opinions on, you know, roasts, making fun of other people? Do you, do you advise shying away from that or do you endorse it? I think it's, uh, it's not the highest uh, form of comedy. I mean, in general, I've never really liked roasts because I think that it's a, it's the opposite of courage, right? If you're just pounding away at somebody and revealing nothing about yourself. But I don't know, I'm, I'm starting to enjoy them because they're this you know, specific, unique form of comedy, which we sort of accept like, okay, the, the roast E uh, signed on for this. It's a kind of a game where you're like, this is gonna try to cross the line as much as it can. But certainly for the, for the comedian who is starting out, you're much better off trying to do self-revelation, self-deprecation in your comedy. People will find you likable when you're self-deprecating. If you get up and just pound away at other people, you know, you can come across as a bit of a, of a jerk and it's, and it's a, definitely a safer form of comedy. Uh, you know, I mentioned Judd Apatow as a, as a guy who's been a, a mentor and, and an example for me. The thing that Judd had very early on, he started out as a stand-up comedian, but the thing that really took him to the next level as a comedy writer was he was in psychotherapy, psychoanalysis quite early on, um, even as a teenager, I believe, certainly all through his 20s when I first met him. He was constantly, you know, talking to his therapist and it really affected his work because, you know, what are you doing when you're talking to a therapist? You're saying, okay, here's who I am. This is all my secrets, blah, 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 blah. You're talking about yourself. You're analyzing yourself. You're puzzling through your own makeup in an environment of no judgment. The therapist is the most non-judgmental person. And that really is analogous to what happens in good comedy on stage and even, you know, certainly in the films of Judd Apatow, if you look at the 40-year-old version or Knocked Up, that was one of his, his most personal movies. Um, it has that element of 
somebody examining themselves very honestly and non-judgmentally. And that is a very good tone for comedy and a good uh, an example to steer yourself by as you, as you begin to explore comedy. Yeah, so then, then can you take these personal shortcomings or problems and infuse them into a character? Uh, sure. You know, are you talking about maybe writing for characters on television, that sort of writing, writing for TV? Yeah, like The Simpsons or something. For sure. Yeah, you know, uh, The Simpsons is a great example because it's an animated show. They, we, they do crazy stuff on that show. You can go to the moon, you can go back in time. And so it's, uh, you know, animated shows uh, typically are very zany. Sometimes they can be very silly, despite what my mentor Susan Harris said. Uh, there's, there's room for for uh, a kind of largeness, high energy, uh, speediness, et cetera. But even on The Simpsons, uh, the, the core of it always is grounded, serious, emotional something is going on there. And so when I was a writer on The Simpsons, uh, when I would go looking for a story to write, I always start in a very serious mode. I would think, okay, you know, if I were Homer, you know, what would I be feeling? If I were a father with a, with a kid who didn't respect me, you know, how, what would that be like? That might be painful, what would I do? So I always start in a very serious vein. I always ask myself in every script that I've ever written, I've tried to ask myself, what is serious and painful in the themes that I'm doing? Even if, um, you know, uh, the, the, story doesn't seem to be on the surface about uh, something uh, uh, profound. Uh, you want to ask yourself, how do I relate to this? How could this be an expression of something that's troubling to me emotionally? If you find that, it always works out. You know, it, it, that's really been the secret of my career is that even though I'm just writing comedy and even though I'm just trying to make you laugh, you should feel in everything I write that there's somebody back there, there's an author, me, back there, trying to struggle with stuff that's emotionally a little bit serious. For some reason, that's the magic formula. Now you were asking, you know, can you import your own perspective, your own opinions into uh, characters? For sure, it's definitely what you do. And that's kind of the magic trick of, of television writers. You know, on The Office, when I was there, by the end of the show, we had 18 different characters. You know, there were young, old, male, female, black, white, gay, straight, uh, right wing, left wing. And so for sure, you have to develop the knack of thinking in the mind of somebody that you're not. Uh, but even so, you can find ways that that character is an expression of something you feel. And that is definitely what you want to do. Use these characters as a mouthpiece for something that's real to you, for sure. Awesome. And then going back to what uh, Susan Harris, the advice she gave to you mm -hmm. about how silly is not funny. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you're great at impersonations. And <laughs> I always find them very funny. Thank you. Uh, but they are pretty silly. So yeah. have you ever tried those in a stand-up comedy um, performance? And for sure. How do well, you they, work in that silliness? Oh, well, well, okay. So let's talk about silly a little bit because I've, I've repeated this thing about silly isn't funny my entire career, 25 years now. And many times I have run into very talented comedy writers who get enraged at this. And they say, silly is funny. There is a place for silly. And so very, there are very good comedy writers who would... Uh, dispute Susan Harris. I've tried to understand what the actual truth here is. My basic feeling is that 
what Susan was saying mostly applied to classic half hour comedy uh, with realistic characters that serious actors are performing, like The Office. And it is true, broadly speaking, even for animated shows, if it's, if it's a half hour long, there's gotta be seriousness to it or you become bored, you start to feel like this isn't worth watching. The exception where silly can have its place is uh, stand-up comedy, uh, sketch comedy, uh, and animated comedy to some degree. Th these, these forms of comedy often are shorter, they're more heightened, exaggerated, high energy, and silly can have its place. Late night comedy, uh, Conan O'Brien will do stuff that's silly, especially in the sketch material. So there is a place for that. And the energy of silly, if you uh, are attracted to it as a comedy writer, you should respect that and, and by all means, you know, follow your own um, intuitions on that. But you're gonna find that especially silly works with sketch. And it can work with, with, uh, with, with stand-up as well. What you're talking about more specifically, Jaden, I think you correctly identified that accents and characters frequently uh, are laugh intensifiers. And I'm noticing more and more when I watch stand-up comedians who are funny, I notice that so many of them, Maria Bamford is an example, okay? Such a weirdo, funny comedian. But if you watch what's making her funny, you'll notice that very often she's going into voices. She has a whole, uh, you know, menagerie of characters that she's doing and her funny voices always are the laugh intensifier. So yeah, I noticed this uh, when I was doing stand-up early on. Uh, there was a bit that I would do, um, let's see. Uh, oh God, it was, it was about um, how when, when telemarketers would call me and I would do this thing where I was so annoyed when I would be writing and I would get these calls from telemarketers and I would pick up the phone and it would waste my time. So I started doing this thing kind of, you know, uh, passive aggressively where the phone would ring and I wouldn't recognize the number and I would say, um, I would say, hello. Uh, hello, can I speak to Mr. Forrester? Oh, yes, Mr. Forrester, you want to talk to Mr. Forrester? He, 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 right here, he wants to talk to you now. Uh, okay, yes, thank you. Uh, get Mr. Forrester for you. And then I would get on the phone and say, Hello, this is Mr. Forrester, what can I do for you? Uh, we would like to sell you some, you know, some tickets to the LA Kings. Oh, I would love to have some tickets for the Kings. I'm going to put you back with my assistant. He will put the credit card. Chico, come here. Hello, Mr. Forrester, he wants to, to, to buy the, for the, for the ticket, right? So I would just do that endlessly. I mean, if you do that on stage, you can get some laughs, and mostly the laughs are just coming from the craziness of going back and forth with these voices. So it did show me that if you have the ability to do accents, frequently when you say that's a funny person, it's because they can do funny voices. You know, the thing about uh, comedy as a career is typically comedy writers, we don't really have to be funny. We have to be funny on the page for other actors to be funny, but we don't have to actually be funny people. In fact, most of the comedy writers on The Simpsons, for example, very unfunny if you met them. Super smart, very quiet, like the nerdiest like math majors. We had, we had two guys when I was at The Simpsons who were regularly applied in the, uh, regularly published in the Journal of Applied Mathematics. They were like these super brain guys, David Cohen and Ken Keeler. They were not what you would call funny in the room, but they were able to write funny because they were so fucking Right. Um, the other kind of person is the person who can make you laugh in the room, the, the, the stand-up comedian. And those people, yeah, you're right. Frequently the person that makes you laugh in person is a guy or girl who can do voices and can do characters. And that's what you're laughing at. It's that energy of the odd character that they're doing. Yeah. And then besides impressions, what techniques have you seen been used or have you used 
to be funnier in everyday conversation? Yeah, well, I, I noticed a couple things. So in addition to being able to do characters and voices, which I would say is number one, if you can do characters and voices, people are going to think you're funny. And in, literally, you can go on YouTube and just like choose some accents that you want to do. If you can do voices, people will think you're funny. So I would say that would be number one. Uh, number two, there, there is a kind of high energy element to comedy people. You know, very often uh, when you're around somebody that you think is funny, they're, they're bringing a, a sort of high energy uh, performance to their interaction with you. And then the third thing is courage. Uh, the, the courage to perform is just a universal amongst funny people. I mean, imagine the courage it takes to get up on stage and perform. It's, 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 you know, it, it's crazy for mo most people. Apparently they're more afraid of stand of, of performing in front of others than they're afraid of sharks. It's like a universal fear that people have. So there's a courage that it takes. And, but you'll notice that, um, that even funny people, even when they're not on stage, they often are manifesting a certain degree of courage. They're going to they're gonna have the courage to do something ridiculous. That's really what it is, right? If you have the courage to seem like an idiot, uh, then you're going to seem funny, right? The clown, you're laughing at a clown. If you just look at what a clown is historically, right? The clown typically has like a big red nose. Uh, you know, Charlie Chaplin is dressed as a kind of a homeless person. You know, the, the clown is a low status person, a person you laugh at. So if you have the courage to be seen as ridiculous, that probably is one of the main common denominators of being a funny person. But again, I think a lot of it is, um, is less scientific and more intuitive. You know, the, the way to become funny, if you want to become funny, is imitate other funny people. So watching stand-up comedians and trying to kind of imitate them is a great way to do it. Did you notice in Judy Carter's book, did she have you do this thing? I remember when I took her class, she, the first exercise she had us do was to watch a comedian that we liked, write down the comedian's act, and then get up in front of the class and do that comedian's act. You know, if you, if you get serious about studying comedy, I thought that was a great exercise because it, it, basically what she's showing you is, there's two elements to a stand-up comedy routine. One is the written material and the other is the performance of it. And you can go and perform somebody else's written material and get laughs with it, you know, pretty easily. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a definitely a fun exercise to do. Um, you know, something that I have uh, discovered when I teach comedy, which I like to do from time to time, uh, very often people will say to me, uh, I want to try doing a stand-up act. I have like a a one woman show that I want to try to do. Um, where can I go and try to perform and, and get some experience performing? Well, it turns out that virtually any like local coffee shop that you uh, know of uh, would love for you to come and, you know, do a comedy show there. You know, the place closes at seven. You say, look, keep it open one extra hour. I'm going to bring in like 25 people. We'll all buy lattes and muffins and stuff. And we're going to do a comedy show. And so, you know, if you, if you really want to perform comedy and you find other people who want to do it, it's very easy to find venues to do it. It's, it's, uh, it's all about basically initiative and the courage to do it. So if you're interested in doing it, it's, it's, it's quite easy to do. You actually can even make money doing it. That, that's what Judy Carter would do. So mm -hmm. Judy, as part of her class, you know, she would have these classes, there'd be 50 people in the class. And then at the end of the class, she would just go and get like a comedy club on some night that they didn't have anybody coming in. And she would just rent it out. And everybody would have like five of their friends, all the students would have like five or six of their friends come, they would pay for tickets, 
And Judy on top of her class would make another like, you know, thousand dollars for like a night uh, yeah. just by using an unused space. So if you're, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit and you're into comedy, you can easily do that. Many, many uh, uh, promoters in LA started out that way. Just doing mm. these kind of what they call bringer shows. A bringer show is where the performers bring their friends to the show. Really easy way to develop your comedy chops and make a little pocket money. Yeah, sounds like a great idea. Good summer job or something. Oh yeah, man, it's great. It's a it's the funnest way to make uh, you know easy money is uh, go find a place that that you know you bring in your own microphone. Um, you know, go find your your friends online who also want to perform stand up and uh, and do a show. You'll uh, you'll make more than than a summer worth of busboying in a week. Sounds fantastic. So. Now can we uh, talk about some of those methods that comedians use to get laughs, such as I know like comic irony and sacred versus profane are some of your favorites. Can you talk about some of those tips? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, you know, when I, when I started analyzing comedy and saying, why, why is this funny? I started to notice some interesting patterns in comedy. Well, the, one of the first ones that I noticed was this contrast of the sacred and the profane, which if you're analyzing comedy, it just comes up all the time. Um, you know, the, the great example I always use is when I was working on the Ben Stiller show way back when, this was before the internet, people would sometimes just bring to work like a, a video cassette and they'd go, look at this, this is really funny. And, you know, it was like the, the, the memes of, of, uh, of our time were these tapes that people would pass around. And hands down, the one that people would laugh at just guaranteed was this thing called the farting preacher. And you can go online and look at the farting preacher. It was this televangelist guy. And he would, uh, he would do this very serious sermon. And he would go, I feel the spirit of Jesus within me. And as he said it, he would, he would get very inspired. And he would close his eyes real shut tight, right? And so all somebody had done was whenever the guy would shut his eyes real tight, they would just dub in this fart sound, right? So it looked like he was praying to Jesus and then he would stop and cut a fart. And it was like 15 minutes of this guy preaching to Jesus and then cutting farts when his eyes closed real tight. It was the dumbest, simplest thing. And it always made everybody laugh. Apparently like rock stars, they, they, on their tour buses, all the rock stars had the farting preacher. They would play it on their buses, right? Okay, so why is this funny? It's the contrast between the sacred and the profane. You know, if you just make a list of things that are sacred, religion, uh, babies, you know, old people, uh, funerals, um, death is sacred. And then you make a list of things that are profane, you know, farting, the bathroom, sex, cursing, you know, to some degree, rock and roll is profane. If all you do is just then combo those things up, you know, draw lines connecting sacred things and profane things, well, religion and farting, you get the farting preacher. Um, uh, violence is profane. Uh, you know, baby with a machine gun, that could easily be a, a, you know, adult swim cartoon, you know, tomorrow. Why is that funny? Well, it's, it's funny because it's a, it's a sacred and profane. Babies are sacred, you know, violence is profane. Um, an example I always use uh, of, of, of the, high, the highest example of a sacred profane contrast, there was a scene when I was starting to write comedy that everybody hailed as like the greatest scene ever written in comedy. And it was for a show called the Mary Tyler Moore show. Very good uh, show that most people have probably forgotten in your generation, but uh, it featured a, a character named Mary Tyler Moore. She's at a funeral for a clown. 
and uh, it's it's called the Chuckles the Clown scene. So this this uh, this famous uh, clown has has died, and Mary Tyler Moore is at the funeral. And as they're talking about how the clown died, he was in a parade. He was dressed as a peanut. An elephant shucked him to death. She uh, she can't help laughing during the during the funeral uh, eulogy, and it's this it's this famous scene. Um, Part of it is just the performance of somebody trying not to laugh in a funeral. But if you look at it, what's funny about it? Funerals are sacred. Laughter is profane. It makes uh, uh, the comedy uh, funny. So if you, if you analyze comedy, you will see that dynamic quite a lot. Another one that you mentioned there was comic irony. This is something that I used all the time on The Simpsons. I, I use it to this day. Um, you know, if, if you think about um, uh, why is... Um, why is, is slapstick funny? You know, uh, Charlie Chaplin talked about this. He said, he said, if a man is walking down the street and he falls into a manhole, he said, that's slapstick. It's not particularly funny if a man just falls into a manhole. But if a man steps over a manhole and gets hit by a bus, that's funny. What's the difference? Well, the difference is in his attempt to get to safety, stepping over the manhole, he actually gets himself killed. So in the attempt to be safe, he gets himself into danger. In the attempt to do something, you do the opposite. In the attempt to make $1,000, you lose $10,000. That's an ironic, uh, a comically ironic uh, move. And you can notice it, I noticed it on The Simpsons, very often Homer would try to sound smart and actually sound dumb. And that's funnier than just being dumb. So, you know, I, I, an example was, um, I remember uh, Homer's in an art gallery and he says, mm, look at this painting, who painted it? Michael Michelangelo. So by mispronouncing Michelangelo, he's trying to sound smart, he actually sounds dumb. That's comic irony. In the attempt to accomplish one thing, you accomplish the opposite. You'll notice that if you analyze comedy quite often, uh, that is a dynamic in there. And these dynamics, by the way, they often uh, pile up. You'll notice that there are two or three of these comic dynamics within a single moment of comedy. So when you become sophisticated in analyzing comedy, you'll notice, oh, wow, there's a, there's a comic irony and a sacred profane contrast and, and also a little bit of wordplay. You know, wordplay, puns, will almost never make you laugh. Puns, in fact, are just kind of tiring. You know, a person who just is constantly making puns, you're not gonna wanna hang around with that person for very long. But a pun that has a comic irony and a sacred profane contrast within it, that sometimes will make you laugh, often will make you laugh because there's multiple things going on at the same time. So that's kind of the mindset you get into when you become like a comedy nerd, you know, scientific comedy analyst. You'll start to notice these things in your, uh, in your in your jokes that make you laugh. Mm -hmm. um, so, talking about puns, another thing that uh, in the in the book by Judy Carter, she she expressed that you should generally veer away from telling stories. And is that um, do you share that opinion? And is it more specifically to be shunned when doing a stand-up comedy act, or that's a very interesting piece of advice. It surprises me because I think if you look at uh, stand-up comedy that you respond to, there's a lot of storytelling going on. Um, so I, perhaps what she means is uh, be careful about telling a story that doesn't have a lot of opportunities for laughs along the way. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a kind of setup punchline uh, stand-up comedy joke form. And, um, and it's, it's a very, you know, classic 
um, you know, comedy with a microphone, you know, uh, format where it literally is set up punchline. But I think if you watch stand-up comedy, especially modern stand-up comedy, you'll find that it is a lot of storytelling, which may within it have set up punchline along the way as the building blocks of that story. But uh, I think actually that old style of just doing a, um, uh, you know, one-liners, as they say, mm-hmm, yeah. it actually feels kind of old-fashioned now. You know, the, the original stand-up comedians like uh, Rodney Dangerfield, they were just doing one-liners, you know. Um, Henny Youngman is like one of the original stand-up comedians. He was just doing one-liners. But that actually feels rather artificial relative to modern stand-up comedy. I wonder if uh, Judy's book needs a little bit of an update there. <laughs> Perhaps. Storytelling seems to me to be, you know, intrinsic to stand-up comedy uh, yeah. I think in the book, Judy Carter was trying to touch on that if you take stories and put them into the present tense so that they act more like scenarios, that those scenarios are more engaging to the audience. But I certainly do concede that many great stand-up acts today heavily use stories. Mm -hmm. You know, you're always best off looking at something that works for you, that makes you laugh, and then trying to understand why it makes you laugh. It can be dangerous to be too analytical, especially when uh, you're dealing with stuff that actually isn't um, making you laugh. You can become very disconnected from the experience of comedy. And uh, you know that's the, the real danger of books on comedy is that they can suggest that uh, you can get too funny with formulas, that somehow there are rules and that if you obey the rules, things come out funny. But that really isn't the case. It's, it's mm. much better for you to, uh, to consume comedy and, and really only analyze the stuff that actually makes you laugh. I made a terrible mistake with my first spec script because I wrote a, a writing sample that was an imitation of a show called Murphy Brown. And I actually didn't find Murphy Brown funny. It was, it was a popular show, it was a successful show. And so I thought, well, I should be imitating this. But what happened was I imitated something that didn't make me laugh. And so when I showed it to other people, I created a script that didn't make them laugh. And that is, that is very dangerous. I never made that mistake again. After that, I would only, as I say, write down lines that made me laugh and then try to figure out why did that make me laugh? That's a much better way of going about it. Yeah, plus if, if you're telling comedy that's, or, or performing comedy that's funny to you, yes. then you're going to perform it in a much better way that has more emotion, more sincerity behind it. Right, for sure. Yeah, you know, we respond to what's personal and, and unique, and we like, um, we love point of view in comedy. So, yeah, the more specific it can be to you, the better. You know, good comedians are really into their own opinions. Uh, they do not care if their opinion is uh, contradicted by um, uh, common sense or the consensus of the world. That comedians generally are very defiantly into their uh, attitudes, even and especially when those attitudes go against the grain. And it's kind of the function of comedy in society is that, um, you know, way back when you had the court jester who would speak the truth to the king. And I think there's a lot of that in, um, in comedy today. It's no uh, coincidence that if you look at late night comedy, um, Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, right? What are they doing? They are just 
going after Trump, you know, day and night. Why is that? Because um, they are compelled, comedians always are compelled to go after what is popular uh, if, it, uh, if it goes against what they feel. So going after, you know, the, the popular politician it makes perfect sense for these late night comedians. And then uh, finally, what advice would you give to teenagers who are trying to be more funny in everyday, in everyday life or in writing? Well, I would say that if you have an interest in comedy, that actually makes you very unusual because in fact, 99.99% of people on earth do not actually feel like uh, they want to write comedy, they want to do comedy, they, they don't actually uh, ever believe that they could do it. And so if you actually feel like, you know, I, I bet you I could, you know, do some stand-up comedy or write a, a, a funny TV script, that actually makes you very unique. And almost certainly what has happened is you have recognized some talent within yourself. You've actually noticed, like, I bet you I could do that because you do have some talent within yourself. And that does make you very special. So I would say any teenager who is interested in writing or doing comedy should first recognize that that makes you very special and the specialness is a sign of your own talent. So I would strongly encourage you to pursue it in, in any way. Uh, take a comedy class, try doing a five minute stand-up comedy set, um, try writing a comedy sketch. The easiest thing to write in comedy is a comedy sketch. Uh, for those of you who don't know the vocabulary of, of what a comedy sketch is, it's what you see on Saturday Night Live. It's a short, you know, three to five minute bit of comedy. And anybody who's interested in comedy can write a comedy sketch. Uh, unlike writing a half hour episode of comedy, which can take you a month or two, a comedy sketch you can write in a, you know, single writing session. And they're fun to write. Um, they're fun to perform. You can film them on your camera. You can put them up online. I really think that if you have that inspiration, you owe it to yourself to pursue it a little bit. Uh, the other thing I would say is find other people like you who are also interested in comedy because almost 100% of people who end up pursuing comedy uh, as a career or pursuing it as a hobby, they do it with other people. They find funny other people. They form little groups of funny people. Those people become uh, the people who end up, end up on Saturday Night Live, the people who did Monty Python, um, the people who did uh, uh, the, the Broken Lizard group. That, that's a, a, a comedy troupe that just formed in college, made a whole bunch of movies like Super Troopers, etc. They were just a group of people like you and people who would listen to your podcast who were kind of interested in comedy and found other people who were interested in comedy. Those groups are super, super powerful. So find other people like you, team up, write comedy together, perform it together, film it on your phone, put it online, and pursue this hobby which you're already interested in. If you're interested, it means you have talent and you owe it to yourself to go farther. What a great message. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Brent, for joining us on the podcast. And, uh, I enjoyed it greatly, Jaden. You're a natural interviewer, and I look forward to uh, becoming your biggest fan. <laughs>